the title of the sermon today, the theme of the sermon that I'd like us to focus on today is Christ's people. And it'll become obvious what I'm meaning by that as we go through it. Looking at a new series um, is often helpful to, to just get a bit of an introduction to it to start with. And we'll be doing that um, just looking at the first <coughs> nine verses, the introduction to this letter from Paul and from his brother Sosthenes. Sosthenes. <laughs> Bit of a tongue twister. Uh, we often don't notice when Paul says from Paul and someone else. We think this is just a letter from Paul, but I think even though he wrote it, he's including his partners in the work um, in it as well, which is a great privilege. In this letter, Paul has a standard introduction. And do you know the way if, if we were writing a letter, if we get a business letter, you've got the, the name and address of who it's from, and usually the name of an address of, as to who it's to, and then it's the date and day or so and so, and then you would have the contents of the letter. Well, the first nine verses of 1 Corinthians 9 follows the same format as the many of the letters that we have in the New Testament. It's that introductory block where you have who it's from, who it's to, and a basic a greeting and uh, maybe a prayer, thanksgiving for them. So that follows the standard introduction. But in that, usually Paul includes more. And he doesn't just do the ordinary thing, the bare minimum. He actually puts content into this basic introductory block. And it's that that we're looking at today. Paul had visited Corinth on a second missionary journey. And he'd stayed there for a year and a half. He had left from Jerusalem and gone up through Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And on his way back after being at Athens, he went to Corinth before returning back. Corinth was actually a, a, a city on this little piece of land which joins two bigger pieces of land. It's almost like a, it's just a six-mile-wide little stretch of land which... Corinth had two ports, unlike Belfast, which just has one port on the, the east of, of Ireland. Corinth had two ports. It had a port on the west as well. It had a port where ships could land at this side, but also a port where they could continue on their travels on the other side. Corinth was a city which became very popular, very prosperous, because a lot of um, a lot of sailors didn't want to travel the very stormy route down through the bottom or below Crete, because the winds they could it was very dangerous a lot of time during the year. So what they would do is they would they would sail up to here in the relative peace and calm, take their cargo across land six miles, and then carry on in the the safety of of being so inland um, or, or not out in the, the open sea as much. So Corinth became 
prosperous. It was a bit like the Panama Canal or the Suez Canal in terms of the, the trading route of its day. <coughs> Paul stayed there for a year and a half. Uh, he lived with Priscilla and Aquila, a husband and wife. He became a tent maker like them and he ministered to the church there in Corinth for that time. <coughs> Corinth had been a Greek city, but it had, be, it had become Romanized. And the Roman culture was very much in evidence there. It was a major city. It was an important city. It was a very cosmopolitan city. There were a lot of different people from different parts of the world. Migrants came in because of the the two ports and there was a lot of work, a lot of business. Migrants came in from a lot of places. They brought their different cultures and their different religions. But it was also a very intellectual city. In one of these little um, towns nearby or cities, they, they called everything cities in those days. There were no towns. Everything was a city no matter how small it was. Um, they're not as big as today's cities. But in one of the nearby cities, the whole uh, idea of rhetoric, giving good speeches. Do you know the way some people give after dinner speeches? Giving good speeches, rhetoric was such a, held in such high esteem that they even had competitions. You know the way you see Britain's Got Talent and you know the voice and things today. People go on and see who can win. They had that for people who could tell, give speeches. And so it was no wonder that later on Paul said, well, something, Apollos is a better speaker than, or Paul's a better speaker and so on. This whole intellectual thing was really, really high up for them. They were, they were a bit snobbish, to be honest, <laughs> in terms of the, the, the Roman um, Empire. And the many migrants that would come from other places would come because they could make a much better living and so they were yuppies as well. <laughs> they were upwardly mobile. <coughs> so Corinth was a, almost a city which was a law unto itself. One commentator, Ben Witherington, comments, in Paul's time, many in Corinth were already suffering from a self-made person escapes humble origins syndrome. People were self-made, they'd escaped their humble origins. It was a city where <clears throat> public boasting and self-promotion had become an art form. And he notes the Corinthian people thus lived in an honor-shame cultural orientation where public recognition was often more important than facts. In such a culture, a person's sense of worth is based on recognition by others of one's accomplishments. And yet, into that context, Paul emphasized his humility in contrast to being expected to blow his own trumpet, he actually did the opposite. He didn't focus on his achievements, he focused on his humility. This culture of public recognition, you know, how you look, how you appear, how being so important, it's actually very similar to, to how social media works today. People are more interested in what kind of impression can I give? It doesn't matter that my life is a mess most of the time, as long as it looks good on Instagram or Facebook. And don't, don't give in to that. Don't measure people by that, because they only put their best moments up there. And you don't see them as they really are. 
They never put their ordinary or even their, their poor moments. They don't get bad hair days on <laughs> Facebook. So if you're comparing yourself against other what you see there, you're always going to be depressed. If you compare yourself to what you would look like if well, on what you put up, you'll always be short. You'll always fall short of what you would put up yourself as well on your best days. Don't measure yourself by social media. It is well recognized for causing depression, for causing anxiety, especially amongst young people. Even young people who've been brought up in Christian families who know the truth and who, who aren't going down that whole recognition, honor, shame orientation where they're looking to be well thought of and you don't want to be shamed. You don't want anybody to cancel you. You don't want to say the wrong thing. Well, that's what life was like in Corinth in those days as well. But also it has more similarities with today as well because it was a pluralistic culture. Various religions were accepted. Rhetoric, giving speeches, you know, who, give, who can make the, the, most, the best impression? That's what was valued. It wasn't about whether you're telling the truth. It wasn't about whether you were campaigning for something which was true or for justice. And actually, a lot of people today, young people, there's, there's a danger that when <clears throat> they're focusing on a certain campaign, you know, whether it's the environment or whatever, some people have pointed out that actually sometimes they're more keen to actually show off their outrage than be concerned for the thing that they're outraged about. Sometimes we have to distinguish, are we just giving people the impression that we're righteous people, we're concerned about this and that? Or are we really doing what's helpful for that cause, not worrying about what people think? <clears throat> So Corinth was in many ways very much like our postmodern society. People didn't argue when somebody believed one thing. They didn't say that's wrong. There was a variety of, of religions, a variety of beliefs. The Roman Empire, whenever it conquered a new nation, it didn't impose the Roman religion on that nation because there wasn't one Roman religion. What it did was, he says, you've got a new religion. Okay, we'll adopt that. We'll add that to our religions. And so the Roman Empire, as it went from country to country, it just gathered all these different religions, became pluralistic. In contrast, Paul went and he preached that there's only one savior. There's only one name by which all men must be saved. And that's the name of Jesus Christ. There's only one God, one truth. And so he went against that, that thrust. The message of the church, the message of, of God's word in Corinth that he brought was very much countercultural. And so it's very similar to where we are today, where we're saying things which just go against the grain. <coughs> but Paul had his work cut out for him. Because after ministering in Corinth for a year and a half, which was quite a long time in terms of, of a missionary journey, normally he would spend maybe a week or a few days in a place or a couple of weeks, but he spent a year and a half there. After he went, 
he had to write to them. They were a basket case. There was all kinds of problems in the church. He had to tackle issues of sexual immorality, which was not only occurring, but there were people even in the church were boasting about some of the things that they were doing. They were thinking that they were liberated. They're not tied down by old-fashioned morals. We're free to do what we want. And Paul later has to point out that he's even boasting that one man is or boast, one man's boasting about having an affair with his father's wife. You know, things that even unbelievers wouldn't do. There were legal disputes. Believers were not able to get on with each other. They were going to the courts to sort things out between believers. There were problems at the, the fellowship meals, the <laughs> Lord's table. Some people were overindulging. Other people were, there's nothing left for them. They couldn't agree about food offered to idols. Food offered to idols would have been, you know, the meat producers would have offered food to idols a lot of the time and then sold it on the marketplace. It wasn't that the food was given to the idols and then it, be, it was theirs. It was almost more of a ritual process in terms of the food production for, for some of the producers. So the marketplace, when you went to buy meat, some people were concerned, well, has this meat been involved in this? Has this meat been offered to idols? And Paul is able to say, well, we know that idols are nothing. They're doing nothing of any significance. That's just meat. Just when you're eating it, you're doing nothing more than just eating meat. It, it's fine in itself. So don't worry. And so there were some thinking, this is a problem. Others thinking, no, it's not. And so he had to relate. He had to show how the church could deal with these types of issues. And it's not just important for that. It's also a pattern for how we deal with things in church where there are disagreements. They had many spiritual gifts. They were very blessed by the Spirit in terms of miracles, prophecies, tongues. And yet Paul had to point out to them that, you know, just because you've been given a gift, that doesn't make you extra special. That's a gift. It's not you. It's something that's been given to you. Instead, he has to teach them, well, he begins in 1 Corinthians 13, the something which is far better. Love is patient. Love is kind. That chapter which is so often used at weddings, but actually the context is not so much between a romantic couple. Um, the context is you've got difficult people, you've got people outside, people in family, people in society, and you don't get on with them. You've got to love them. You've got to be patient with them. You've got to be kind towards them. Some had a faulty view of the resurrection. They were saying, there is no resurrection. He quotes in 1 Corinthians 15, some people are saying, let's just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow. That's it. You just, this is all there is. Enjoy it now. That's what the city center is like in Belfast <laughs> at nighttime. You know, that's what so many homes are like at the weekends. Or eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. That's it. People were saying, 
But that's not it. There is a resurrection. And 1 Corinthians 15 is a great chapter teaching us about the resurrection. So in many ways, Corinth and the situation that Paul was writing to is very similar to life today, postmodern life in the Western world. People believed that there was no absolute truth, that all religions are equal, or if you don't believe in anything, that's fine too. Immorality was rampant, and the church got many things wrong in its life and in its theology. In a real sense, Paul's letter is a, a fix-it letter. The church is in a mess, and Paul is starting to sort it out. I'm sure we're familiar with TV programs where somebody comes in and you know, a builder comes in and transforms somebody's home. They do a makeover. Or there's even programs where people go in and declutter people's houses. Or Mrs. Hinch you know, gives tips. Or a super nanny comes in to help out a family who the parents can't control or can't work with their children. They need a fixer person to come in. And this is what Paul is doing. He's coming in to try and fix this letter. And one of the things that we often take for granted is the fact that he even wrote this letter. For many Christians, for many of us maybe even, if we were looking at a church in another part of Belfast or in a neighboring town or city, and all these things were going on, we would say, well, we're not connected with them. We're having nothing to do with them. You know, don't even go near them. They've got sexual immorality. What we're told have nothing to do with people who are like that. But Paul doesn't take that approach. Paul takes the approach of trying to reform, trying to transform, trying to bring people to repentance, where to have nothing to do with people who are unrepentant about sexual immorality. But that doesn't mean we don't go to them and try and get them to repent, which was what Paul was doing in this letter. We instead tend to disown Christians. We tend to disown churches. We tend to disown denominations. We point the finger. And the things we point out are true. You know, some churches are not really doing what they ought to do. But the danger is we can become judgmental. We can become self-righteous. We can forget that we ought to try and bring our brothers and sisters in Christ back to what they ought to live, how they ought to live. Paul's approach was even not to focus first on the issues. But in his introduction here, he actually focuses on who they are. He doesn't go straight in and start reading the right act to them. He begins by reminding them who they are. He says, I'm writing to God's church in Corinth, to you who have been called by God to be his own holy people. He made you holy by means of Christ Jesus, just as he did for all people everywhere who call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. 
He describes them as God's church in Corinth. That's who they are. He doesn't treat them as a wayward list. He doesn't describe them by how they act. He addresses them as to who they are. He doesn't identify them by their actions. He identifies them by their identity in Christ. They're God's church. He will go on to address their sins. But first, he acknowledges who they are. If you've read his letter, we already know what was going on in Corinth. And, and so it's unusual for us to see Paul describe them as those sanctified in Christ Jesus. We think when we read the letter, they're not very sanctified. If you look at the things that they're getting up to, they're quite unsanctified. But he says that they are those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Paul knows that they, like us, if we've placed our faith in Christ, we have received the righteousness of Christ as a gift. The imputed righteousness of Christ, justified by faith, various theological or technical terms that we can describe it as. But we receive a righteousness which is not ours and it becomes ours. We own it. It's not our inherent righteousness from before we came to Christ. So we are righteous. We are justified in Christ, but sanctified in Christ. How can you say we are sanctified in Christ? One of the truths of the Reformation, which was eclipsed, forgotten, uh, it's, it's a bit of a, having a bit of a resurgence now, is that there's such a thing as definite sanctification. There's progressive sanctification. And when, we go, when, when believers are with Christ in glory, we will be perfect. We will be glorified. We will be free from any hint of sin. And on, on our way to go to be with the Lord during this life, we grow in holiness. At least we ought to. It's too often it's a, it's a bit of a slow growth when it ought to be a faster growth. Too often many Christians, where they start in their Christian life, 20, 30, 40 years later, they're still pretty much at the same place. And that's not the way it ought to be. We ought to be getting closer to the Lord. And so that's growth in sanctification. But as well as that, there's a thing called definite sanctification where Paul can say that they are sanctified in Christ. They are sanctified in Christ Jesus. As well as being sanctified, becoming more sanctified, we already are sanctified. The best way, I think, to explain that is that, as Paul describes it towards the end of Romans 7, he says, in my inner person, I delight in the law of God. In our inner person, in our Holy Spirit nature, in that new nature that we have, there is no sin. That nature of the Holy Spirit is holy. And so, insofar as we're talking about the, na the new nature, that new nature is already sanctified. We have a sanctified nature. And that is our true identity. In our true identity as those who are in Christ, we can say we, we've been sanctified in Christ. 
But now we have to grow, we have to live that nature and living that nature over the course of the Christian life. It's not so easy. We have to put on the new person, put away the old. That's what it is to grow in sanctification, to live more in the new, to walk more in the spirit than in the flesh. But what Paul is saying here is that he's focusing on the fact that they are in Christ. They have received the righteousness of Christ as a gift. They have this new nature in the Holy Spirit. He focuses a lot more on that in a second letter, 2 Corinthians 5. Anyone who is in Christ is a new person. The new has come, the old is gone. And he emphasizes the point that they have been called to be saints, to be those who are Christ's, those who are holy, God's people set apart from the world, sanctified. Their Lord and ours. He is identifying them as being part of God's people along with all others in the world. He is... He's showing them who they ought to be. He's showing them who they really are before he then calls them to live and be the people you really ought to be. You are children of the king, live like children of the king. He's stating that they are children of the king here at the start. And then he goes on to encourage them and show them how they ought to live more as Christ's people. And there's something special in recognizing that when, when Christians acknowledge who they are, instead of pointing the finger at the things that are going wrong, when those who are in Christ acknowledge that we are Christ's, that above all else, above all the differences and all the, dif the things that might separate us naturally, when people come together as Christ's people, when they repent of the things that they ought not to have done, when they confess their sins one toward another, that is powerful. And things happen, change happens. A good example of that is in Korea, over a hundred years ago, some pastors came together. The Korean church was very small at the time, back in 1907. Several decades before, there weren't any Christians in Korea. But the missionaries came, the Presbyterians especially, and there was a small church had grown. And there were several hundred um, ministers, pastors there in Korea by 1907. And they had come together for a conference. And they confessed their sin. The, the person who was the lead speaker confessed his sin and let others, others came forward and confessed as well. They repented of things that they had done. There was a move of the Holy Spirit and those series of meetings that, that turned into a series of meetings that became a revival like the Welsh revival just a few years beforehand. In 1907 or so, only 1% of the population of Korea were Christians. And over a hundred years afterwards, between a fifth and a sixth of the population of, of South Korea as it, as it is now, 
are believers. South Korea is quite a small country on the world map. And yet, in terms of sending missionaries to other parts of the world, it is second only to the United States in terms of numbers. Korean missionaries don't understand the West and our lack of prayer. They would have all-night prayer meetings week after week. They would get up at, as, as one person I was listening to recently, he was in Korea, um, one, one pastor, and he was trying to get to sleep. Sometimes it's hard to sleep at night, especially if you're in a new city. Four o'clock in the morning, he thought, football stadium, what's all that noise coming from the football stadium at this time of the morning? So later on, he asked, what sport do they play at this time of the morning? So oh, that wasn't, that wasn't the, the, the team playing. That was the church praying. Christians had got together and were praying so loudly in that stadium that even he could hear it in a nearby hotel. Koreans are, are well known for their early morning prayer meetings, their late night prayer meetings, their all night prayer meetings. The revival in 1907 had such an impact that over 100 years later, it's still having an impact in Korea and the rest of the world. And it began where pastors came together and identified that they were Christ's, first and foremost, and then identified the things that they had been doing wrong and confessed them and repented of them. where we come together and we point the finger at each other and we're seeing each other as, well, you do that and that's wrong and they do that and that's wrong. And we're not seeing that we are in Christ. That doesn't please God. We can learn a lot from how the Koreans came together in that revival. And that, that pattern of revival, of seeing our identity in Christ and confessing sin, repenting, that happens in so many other revivals as well. It's nevertheless difficult to engage with some churches as they are. Some have gone so far from the faith. Some have even denied that Jesus is God, Jehovah's Witnesses. Some have denied that we're justified by faith. Liberal Anglicans, Catholics, many churches, sometimes people would even argue, well, there are many heresies. There are many primary things that actually say, we cannot be joined. That is not the Christian faith. But as long as the primary things are in place, as long as people aren't denying that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that Christ is God, that, that there is an afterlife and so on. The primary things, once they're in place, we can identify churches as being Christ's, but not necessarily walking the way they ought to walk. It's a difficult road to bring people onto the same page to help them to see their errors, to turn from them. But Paul's approach was one of engagement, difficult as it was. 
any hard words for them. Our approach too quickly is too often is to have nothing to do with people that aren't like us or who aren't walking the way they ought to walk. You know, if insofar as you did it to the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you've done it to me, Christ said. In another context, but the same principle applies that we have to see that these are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we ought to, on that basis, try and encourage them to, to walk as they ought to walk. Paul gives the customary greeting, a prayer for grace and peace. And then he praises God for what he has done in their lives. They too often boasted about their spiritual gift, but Paul focuses first on the positive fact that they have the gifts which identify them as Christ's. Now you have every spiritual gift you need as you eagerly wait for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be free from all blame on the day when our Lord Jesus Christ returns. I prefer the ESV sometimes. The literal translation that God will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. The day of our Lord is a judgment day. That phrase, which carries through better in a literal translation, is that when Christ returns to judge the world, when we are with him, we will be glorified. We will be blameless. We will be guiltless. We are guiltless, but it's not as obvious. We're guiltless in Christ, but our sins, when we stand before him, those sins will have been atoned for on the cross. So we will stand guiltless before him on that day if we have placed our faith in him and him alone. So Paul tells them that this is who you are and this is what God is doing and has done for you. And yet, this is a real challenge for us. When people don't look guiltless, when we see their sin up front, it's too much in our face. It's hard for us sometimes to see past and see these are Christ's. We need to encourage them to repent. They might look at us and say the same. We need to be aware of that very much as well. We need to encourage instead of pointing the finger. I know one godly believer who, no matter how hard, no matter how little there is to give thanks and praise in somebody, he finds it and he encourages them. And it's great. If you've been struggling with your own guilt, if you've felt a bit more like what the Corinthian church is like, then remember first, if you've trusted in Christ, if you've repented of your sin, if you've had that Holy Spirit experience, that new heart within then you are, you're Christ's. That's who you are. You're justified by faith. You have his righteousness instead of your own. You have that Holy Spirit. You are sanctified already. And you will be, you will stand guiltless on the judgment day when he comes. If you haven't, all you have to do is just ask. And just look to the cross and trust in Christ. 
and you receive the gift of righteousness, the gift of the Holy Spirit, the inheritance that is ahead. God will do all this, for he is faithful to do what he says. Trust in him, Paul is saying. He has invited you into partnership with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is how he starts. He affirms who the church is. And then he goes on to say, now you ought to live the way the church ought to live. That's a challenge for us. When we consider other believers who aren't living as they ought to, and we are more inclined to disown them. But let's identify with them and let's try and work with them. And if we can't, well, we just, for a time we can't. But let's not forget that if they are Christ's, then they are our brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace that you should bring even us into your presence. We who don't deserve, Lord, we who have sinned, we thank you for your grace towards us. Help us too to see others as those who you have redeemed to see others as those who one day will be shining lights and glory. Help us to see past the difficulties in them that we might see today and help us to look to that fulfillment of what you're doing in them, to see who they are. And Lord, help us as the opportunity arises to encourage them, to rebuke them, and yet to point them even further to look to Christ. Lord, forgive us our sins and help us all to become more who we ought to be and to give you glory. In Jesus' name, amen.